This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to discuss the subject matter of Central Europe, a history of an idea from Nauman to Kundera. And for this podcast, we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Martin Roddy. Professor Roddy is Masaryk Professor of Central European History Emeritus at University College London and Alexander Watson of the University of London. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Thank you very much for the invite. Gentlemen, first question, a matter of clarification. What do you mean when you use the term Central Europe in the time period of Nauman to Kundera, roughly 1915 to 1983? I think I would use it to mean Germany, the lands of the former Habsburg Empire. Um, I would put into that probably a boundary on the Rhine because there are certain areas in Frisia, which I deal with in my book, which, um, which bear a resemblance certainly at various points to what's going on in the rest of Central Europe. Uh, Poland, I would put there. After that, you start to get into the fuzzy territory because Central Europe has been an area that's been chewed over um, physically and mauled by neighboring powers. So Poland has an inexact border on the east. It's been pushed back westwards uh, since 1945. And then, of course, you enter into the area of Ukraine. Now, a large chunk of the Ukraine used to belong to the Habsburg monarchy, or the, the western Ukraine certainly did. Uh, but at the same time, you're dealing with a, a cultural inheritance that extends right up to Kiev. Kiev was a part of the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth right up to the 1660s. And in the um, uh, um, uh, uh, early modern period, was one of the great centres of Baroque Latin learning, peculiarly enough, since it was um, predominantly orthodox. So I think you've got a very wide area. Um, I'm not sure that there's anything that one should alter one's definition as one comes into the consequence of the First World War or Nauman's uh, Middle Europa. Uh, I'm not sure one should um, start changing definitions. The one definition that I think is, is not helpful is the identification of it um, with what are known as the Visegrad countries, the new countries, independent states that emerged in the wake of the fall of communism. Uh, that strikes me as special pleading um, for political reasons uh, and has really skewed the way we think of Central Europe. Nowadays, um, I notice that increasingly the Visegrad Four are being lumped together as East Central Europe, 
which begs the question where West Central Europe is. And I would argue, therefore, that, it, that the West Central Europe is predominantly Germany, but also including those areas that I mentioned that have historically been part of that um, West Central European complex. That's my reading of it, but Alex may differ. Professor Watson? I, I think I'd agree with a lot of that, I, but I suppose I'm, when I've written, you know, most of my work is about the First World War, and I've written, when I've written about the First World War, I've used Central Europe to mean primarily the, the two key central pairs, Germany and Austria-Hungary, plus their allies or the lands they occupied to the east broadly. Um, but it is a bit of a movable feast. I suppose, I suppose I'd want to add two things to, to, to what's been said already. What One is, is that it seems to me that Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, they're not simply geographical terms. Um, they, they obviously have a lot of cultural meaning as well. I mean, if we go back a, some way, then Western Europe was really defined by Western Christendom, whereas Eastern Europe was defined by Eastern Christendom. And these met in the Polish-Ukrainian kind of Belarus and sort of border areas. So this, this in a sort of purest form seems to me to be Central Europe. But it's also the case that, that, that Central Europe, Eastern Europe, these are value-laden to some degree. I mean, I've noticed from among my Polish friends that there's been some shift from, from a, a rejection of the idea that Poland is in East Central Europe. Poland is very firmly in Central Europe because you don't want to be in Eastern Europe because that is the um, orbit and the problem area of Russia. So... Uh, so, so I think we need to think about, I, I think it's very difficult to view these terms without thinking about the political shifts that happened in the 20th century with the First World War, with the Cold War and that divide, and then with 1990 and the end of communism. And I think, that's, I think that has changed the meanings of these terms through, through the century. So I, I guess if there's, if there's one area that we perhaps differ, it's I'd be inclined to, to attach more importance and more weight to the political context in which these have used, in which these terms have changed through the 20th century. I think, I think that's fair to say. Your responses yeah, yeah. call up two issues. Um, one is how much of the concept, historically speaking, was tied up with the Habsburgs? And second, uh, isn't it the case that, as opposed to, say, if you were in Prague or Pressburg or Bratislava or much less Vienna, um, you you have much more of an interest in the concept, historically speaking, as well as in con 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 contemporaneously, than if you were in Warsaw. I think maybe because of the Yugoslavian inheritance, Poles are less entranced with the concept of Central Europe than someone who is in Prague or Vienna. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I think one of the dangers is that when a lot of people talk about Central Europe, and start providing, if you like, bullet points for what Central Europe is. I think they're actually thinking of the Habsburg monarchy. I remember George Shirtlin going through about uh, the bullet points were um, uh, Baroque architecture, counter-reformation, mismatch of state and nation. And I mean, all of these apply to the Habsburg monarchy. They apply less obviously to... Um, Germany, uh, the German lands. So I think there's a danger of saying, trying to define Central Europe as being Habsburg, then in a sort of loop coming up with 
the Habsburg, what is peculiar about the Habsburgs and special about the Habsburgs, and then bending it back and saying that's Central Europe. So I think you leave out uh, a very large area that has been um, uh, historically a part of, 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 of the Central European space and had very much similar experiences. Um, that would be one view. When it comes to Poland, Poland is very uh, difficult uh, because the Poles themselves uh, have got um, a differing a, a view that changes every few years with regard to their historic role. At the moment, I'm not surprised to learn that um, that uh, they're very firmly against the idea of being Eastern Europe and want very much to belong to a Central European definition. Uh, but that wasn't the case a dozen years ago. I went a dozen years ago, I think, to... I've been to two disgraceful conferences, and this was one of them, which was organised by the um, uh, Polish presidency. Uh, and it was towards a definition of... Uh, I can't remember whether it was East Central or Central East. Um, and the picture of it was, the, that they put on the map to uh, illustrate this, was of Poland... There's more or less the same colour as its two eastern neighbours, Belarus and Ukraine. And clearly the entire conference was aimed at trying to justify Poland's leading role on the edge of Europe as the, if you like, the mother state that would um, uh, nurture the countries of Belarus and Ukraine and bring them into the European fold. Uh, that idea, of course, has now passed. Um, uh, I don't think Poland is currently looking to perform that role. It may well do once the Russian-Ukrainian war has come to an end. It may see itself as one of the forces of reconstruction. Uh, but when we come to Poland, Poland's place... Uh, and Poland's consideration of its place changes as much as its space does. Professor Watson? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's completely spot on. I fully agree with, with all of that. I think that. I think that you can't simply limit Central Europe to the Habsburgs because the broader German historical experience is so crucial to everything that's going in, in Central Europe and, and, and shapes it and, and, you know, both... both, both the middle of Europe and well beyond, well beyond, well beyond its uh, its its boundaries. And yeah, as, as far as as far as Poland goes, um, I suppose I suppose when Martin was, was was talking about that, it just it just made me think about how remarkable it is that in some ways one country which definitely isn't ever listed as being in Central Europe, Russia, actually has quite an influence. What it's doing seems to influence how far central and east central europe yes. go and oh. where these where these where these borders lie um yeah it, it seems to me that that uh, as, as the possibility of of sort of how can i put it some type of western european or uh, i don't know we've got to be a bit careful here how can, how can we put this but some some sort of um, well the 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 more integrated 
um, or the, the greater the possibility of integrating countries further to the east of Europe is, then the more people are open to the idea of a central east type identity straddling both because it gives one political flexibility, it gives one, it, it, it suggests influence and it suggests openness because, because these countries can kind of like be brought in out of the cold. But once the, once the barriers come down, whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's today or even if we think back to, to, to you know, the Cold War era, where Central Europe features in that, then um, the, the Central Europe is, is likely to be defined in a far more narrower and more strictly boundaried way. So I think Russia has a lot of influence or, or it inadvertently has a lot of influence over how we think of Central Europe and Eastern Europe and East Central Europe and what, what terms and, and typologies we use. Because as I said at the start, I think that these are, I think these are not just simply geographical, but I think they have they they reflect deeper political meanings. And I think one can I, I think one can see this in a number of, of maps actually. Um, when it comes to Central Europe, I think people are too um, uh, keen on looking at the political maps of Central Europe, which are very fickle spaces. Um, I mean, the map of Central Europe. Uh, has changed in the last 30 years. We've got um, Slovakia has emerged as a new unit, um, and uh, Germany has merged from two states to a, a single state. Uh, we've got a lot of changes on the edges of Central Europe in terms of Kosovo, Moldova, Transnistria, the, the perpetual problem of that pirate substate of Kaliningrad, which was the old Königsberg. Um, but what you have is rather different maps of the ones that I like to look at. I like to look at the light map of Europe, um, Europe seen by night. Uh, and one can start seeing where Central Europe is in terms of the boundaries of light and where some of the more problematic areas are, namely um, uh, whether the Netherlands is part of Central Europe, uh, whether Northern Italy, Lombardy is part of Central Europe. A, a light map is something you just go on to Google, go on to light map of Europe, and people can see exactly what I mean by that. Uh, the other one is the railway map of Europe, and that is absolutely fascinating. Um, it's... Uh, sadly, it doesn't show defunct railway lines, um, or I haven't found a map that does. Otherwise, it would show quite a hatch of lines in Bosnia linking in to the rest of Central Europe. But what is interesting is the area around Warsaw uh, is very badly served with railway lines. And that is the legacy of what used to be called Congress Poland, was the, um, the, 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 the part that was uh, taken by Russia in the uh, partitions and granted back to Russia after the defeat of Napoleon. And if you look at the railway map of Europe, you can see the area of Congress Poland absolutely staring you in the face. Um, it's, in a sense... Despite the ebb and flow of frontiers, railway lines run on them. Uh, gentlemen, who was Felix, I'm sorry, who was Friedrich Nauman, and how important or influential was his 1915 book titled Central Europe? And was he at all influenced by Felix Schwarzenberg's 
concept of the empire of, uh, I think, what is it, 50 millions? 70 millions. Yeah. 70 millions, thank you. Professor Roddy? Or Professor well, Watson? I, I think Alex is probably best, be, better on Nauman than I am. So, now, well, I don't know a huge amount of Nauman as an individual. I know how important he was in influencing Bedman Holdig. So, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start with this. So, so um, Nauman produced this book, uh, Middle Europa, Central Europe, in, I think it comes out in 19, uh, actually, that's a good point, when does it come out? 1915. Is it 1913? No, no, 1915. No, no. 19, I think the fall of 1915. Okay, so it comes out in 1915. Um, and his ideas tie in neatly with I, the ideas of the German Chancellor at the time, who's a guy called Theobald Bethmann Holwig, who is uh, thinking about how Germany can maximize its early gains in the First World War. So at the start of the First World War in 1914, Germany gets off to what for its leaders is a ultimately a disappointing start, but nonetheless, what looks on the map to be a pretty impressive one. It's captured um, Belgium, it captures much of North uh, Eastern France, and then in the West, it sorry, and then in the East, it also um, invades Poland in 1915 uh, and. Um, Later in 1915, Serbia is taken, um, Bulgaria becomes an ally, and so on. And you get this kind of power block in 1915, or at least what the Germans hope will be a German-led power block, which they hope to benefit from economically after the war. And the ideas of this is already already kind of in circulation in 1940, because... Um, in September 1914, Bedford Holwig draws up, or has his, his, his main assistant draw up, uh, a war aims program, Germany's first war aims program, which is called the September program, September 1914. And one of the, this, this has various demands for annexations in various places. And it, it's written in early in the war when it seems that Germany might win a very quick and overwhelming victory. Um, and one of the ideas in this is the idea of a Central Europe Customs Union, um, Central European Customs Union led by Germany. And that's attractive for a number of reasons. The first reason is that it's a mechanism. German, uh, where, where do we start with? Germany knows how to fight continental powers pretty well. It knows how to fight France and Russia. These are land-based continental powers with armies on the model of Germany's army. And it seems, it says at this point, that Germany might actually just squeeze a very quick victory. Where Germany has a bigger problem in 1914 is how to take Britain, uh, because Britain isn't a land-based power, it's a maritime power. Uh, and the Germans are aware of the dangers of taking on Britain, because Britain has used blockade very effectively 100 years earlier in the Napoleonic Wars in order to squeeze Napoleon. And one of the attractions of this idea of a Central European Customs Union is that it will create a bloc which will be able to compete with the British Empire and, uh, and um, thwart British, the, the British blockade, which is, which is inevitably going to come. The other big attraction of it is that Germany is the most powerful economy in this zone, and politically as well powerful. Uh, and the hope is is that this will 
provide this this larger zone, this wider zone, will provide a market for Germany's industrial finished goods, and with that, provide Germany with political power. That that economic power will translate into political power. Um, that's kind of the the buff overview of how the Germans are planning on using it. The, the Habsburgs recognise the dangers of this very, very quickly. But I, I think I'll stop there because Martin has probably got quite a lot to say about that. So that's, that's yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, if, you're a, if you're a sort of central planner, um, one of the traps that you fall into is saying, oh, what we need is a mix of industrial economies and agricultural economies. So we'll specify what the industrial economies are going to be and the chances are that as a planner you will come from one of the industrialized economies and then we'll specify what the agricultural colonies uh, the agricultural zone is going to be um, and that's behind the um, uh, Nauman's view and likewise the the, the view of uh, put forward in the September program and of course um, <clears throat> this is not new the Habsburgs were attempting to do the same to make Austria a, an industrial uh, uh, finished products manufacturing uh, zone and Hungary to be an exporter of cattle and wheat. Uh, and of course, Soviet planners uh, did exactly the same. And they ended up with enormous problems because they told the Romanians and uh, Yugoslavs that, oh, your job as part of um, Comicon, the communist economic bloc, is to be an agricultural state. Well, of course, nobody wants to be told that they're going to be a country full of, of, of peasant farmers um, or collectivized farmers. Uh, so as a consequence, it put the Soviet Union into a tremendous difficulty in the 40s, 50s, and, and, and it never really recovered its hold over Yugoslavia again, certainly not after 48. Uh, and it also lost a lot of goodwill when it came to Romania. So this type of planning uh, is something that countries uh, occasionally um, deal in, um, but it's it's never going to be very effective because you are relegating a swathe of territory to second-class citizenship. In a sense, that's what Nauman has in mind, that these are going to be second-place uh, countries to Germany, and they're going to be under a power hegemony. Uh, but um, it... it it was a, a plan that I think would have been very difficult to have been put through in the long term. They actually came quite close, didn't they, in, in, in 1918? I mean, as part of the deal between the Habsburgs and the Germans after, after um, the last emperor, Emperor Karl, looks like he, well, he's making, he's making peace, uh, peace approaches behind the Germans' back, and then when that all is exposed, there's a there's 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 a deal between Germany and and uh, and and Austria-Hungary, which includes military clauses, but also these economic clauses, which look yes. something like some of the plans for Middle Europa. But this is only done under intense under intense yeah. political and diplomatic pressure. 
Yeah, and it's because that they failed after Bresley Toms could get their hands on Ukrainian grain. It just doesn't yeah. make its way eastward to yeah. westwards. What they're really interested in when, it, when they're doing the deal with the Habsburgs is grabbing the Hungarian grain supplies because the Hungarians have established, if you like, a, uh, a protectionist policy. And uh, the government is restricting the movement of convoys of supplies into Austria, uh, and even when the government lets go, local mayors on the, the frontier just um, uh, unload shipments going westwards. They keep them for themselves. Yeah, it'd be unwise to imagine that Central Europe means solidarity among Central Europeans, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, would it be true to say that the concept of Central Europe basically disappears in the interwar period? Um, I would have thought that it it becomes, uh, well, I'm not sure. I mean, people are still using the term Central Europe, um, and in the interwar period, uh, they some, there are a number of other terms that get put together, the Zwischen Europa, the land, the Europe between the big power blocks of Germany and Russia. You get that term beginning to emerge. Um, uh, but I think the idea of Central Europe is still there. I mean, where it, when it disappears is in 1945. Um, and I can give some <clears throat> examples that <clears throat> when I was doing my PhD back in the, the, the late 70s, um, I had a real problem with what Central Europe meant. Uh, the only times I ever confronted it was in Central European time. And I thought when people talked about Central Europe that, um, uh, uh, that they were meaning countries that belonged to Central European hype. So I used the, the concept quite uh, broadly in my, in my PhD only to find the examiners asking me what I thought Central Europe was. Um, and I sort of felt that to say it was a time zone looked a little bit um, looked a little bit um, uh, superficial and perhaps uh, idiotic. So I said something else and managed to, to fudge my way around it. But I think that's the point. It, it disappeared. The only place it occurs actually is in a variant of Middle Europa, which is Mitropa, which um, was the name of the German sleeper couchette service uh, rather good i used it once um i stole a cup which i subsequently lost um but that was the only uh way that middle europa made itself felt and the idea of central europe only reappears really in the 1980s as um an intellectual invention if you like as a way of saying we're not really part of the Soviet bloc. We've got a separate identity. We want to go our own way, and we should be allowed to do it. And then it changes in the 1990s, which is we're special. Uh, we're a, uh, a historic zone. We belong to Western Europe. Give us membership of the European Union, and while you're at it, give us large infrastructural grants. So that, I think, was the way that Central Europe disappeared and how it reappeared in the course of the 1980s. Professor Watson? Yeah, so I, I think it's, I, I mean, 
Central Europe seems to me certainly to be uh, less key in the interwar period than other terms. And if you think politically, that kind of that kind of makes sense. I mean, the whole idea of Middle Europa was 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 you know very tied up with with Germany or with I mean Naumann was an Austrian I think so so you know with with Austria but certainly with the German speaking world and and that wasn't necessarily something that um, elites in Poland or elites in Czechoslovakia or elites in Yugoslavia wanted to be associated with. I mean, the, the center of gravity for them was actually France. So uh, talking about Central Europe and Central Europeans didn't really make a lot of certainly political sense in the interwar period. And then, as, as, as Martin has said, it made no sense at all after 1945, where Europe is 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 rent so clearly in between east and west with, with you know the different ideologies and and the military stances and and, and so on and so forth so i think when we come to 1990 as, as as martin has said we get a resurrection of the idea of central europe because then the the idea of central europe and the identity of central europe become politically useful for ex-communist countries including including Germany, uh, which is, you know, which has to reintegrate Eastern Germany, this, this, this becomes politically useful for the, for the diplomatic and international environment that, that is in, in play. And I think that, um, I think that's remained so, but in somewhat changing forms to this day. So paying attention to that political context, I think is very important in, in understanding why Central Europe is more or less frequently mentioned, and and what the sort of what the ideological baggage behind the term is, and how that changes through the 20th and into the 21st centuries. What was the thesis and intellectual background to Milan Kundera's 1983 essay, "The Tragedy of Central Europe," and why did it have such a why did it create such a stir in the West? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, he was an established um, uh, author. Uh, uh, He was the most famous Czech author, and that carried resonance. Uh, He had by then um, moved to France, uh, and I think it was... I find it actually an extraordinarily superficial and very rude book, and I'll give you some examples of this. I mean, he says Central Europe has always belonged to Western Europe. It, it is part of Western Europe, and it has been overrun and captured by uh, Russia. Um, well, it's been captured by Russia. Whether it was always a part of Central of Western Europe is another matter. That would require some definition of Western Europe. I would argue that's broadly right, but that there are certain provincial characteristics that mark it out as different, even in the course of the Middle Ages. So I'm a little bit worried about this. And he doesn't provide any historical background. He's an essayist and a novelist. Then he goes one stage further, and he says the values that... Um, Central Europe, by which he means um, this conquered area, but he he largely leaves East Germany out of it. The values that they represent are European values, and they demonstrate them more intensely than Western Europe does. And in fact, he sees Western Europe as moving into a condition of sort of moral and intellectual decline, which will only be revivified by Central Europe 
rejoining the rest of Europe. And he makes the extraordinary um, sentence uh, um, contrasting uh, Prague with Paris. And he says, um, in, in, at dinner parties in Paris, people only discuss television. They don't discuss reviews. I mean, I found that absolutely extraordinary. And he'd clearly never been to many dinner parties in, in, in Prague um, because or, or he didn't perhaps reflect that um, the television in, 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 in communist Czechoslovakia just probably wasn't worth worrying about and probably wasn't worth watching. But it is a, 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 a tremendously impudent statement, I think, um, and I think has been demonstrated as palpably wrong. The reviews to which he makes reference were all reviews subsidised by the Communist Party. And the Communist Party has um, uh, uh, ceased to exist, and with it, the vast number of reviews that used to be found in bookshops, they've all disappeared in Prague, they've disappeared in Budapest, um, and people now at dinner parties in Budapest and Prague discuss television programs. Professor Watson? I know this sort of dinner parties made me wonder whether there's a, there's a culinary unity about about Central Europe that we might be able to draw. And I, I was really interested in what Martin was saying about light, um, I, I'm going yeah. to do that. As soon as we, as soon as we, we, we finish this podcast, I shall be, I shall be on Google, googling a light map, Central Europe, so, yeah. I, can, so, I, can, so I can see this, and, and the railways as well. I, I mean, the, the, the railways. I've given a lot of, a lot of thought to as well, and I've, I've been a, a, a victim of, of Warsaw's poor connections, especially when trying to get down to the southeast of the country. Anywhere, any, anywhere from, from anywhere from Warsaw down to the old Habsburg southeast, and you're in big, big, big problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, it's a fact as well that, um, you know, the journey from Vienna to Lviv now takes, I think, about four hours longer than it would have done in 1910, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which, which, which I, I always think is interesting in terms of, you know, People talk about technology, but politics still trumps out in the end. But um, yeah. but yeah, I was I was I was just wondering with all this sort of dinner parties whether there is at least among the mass of the sort of Christian population that that is that is in Eastern Europe whether whether some sort of pork based diet might might actually help some sort of us unify this area in some way. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think one has to be careful. I mean, the, the largest consumption of pizzas per head of population is among Norwegians. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I think Brits are number three, and the Italians are number five, you know. Um, and other things, the, the Hungarian paprika... Uh, is a product of the early 19th century because uh, of the blockade of Napoleonic Europe. Um, The convoys from ships coming, shipments coming from India could no longer get through to Central Europe. So black pepper wasn't available and so the Hungarians started making it out of um, uh, uh, capsicums and as a consequence you get the this red pepper which we all associate with, with Hungary it might be more in the case of drink a beer map 
um, shows very high consumption of beer in um, uh, Central Europe. Likewise, it does map on a bit to spirits. Uh, but, of course, the, the highest consumption of beer, I think, is Lithuania and Ireland. So, you know, there are going to be outliers there. Do we have any idea at all what was the reaction in Central Europe to Kundera's essay? I have no idea at all. It was published in... Uh, it, it was published in... Um, in the New York Review of Books originally in 1983. Yeah, and uh, it was very, very... He was very, very protective. Um, George Shirtlin, who was a great scholar of, of political science in Central Europe, he attempted to get hold of it for a an anthology he was putting together on Central Europe, published about 1990, I think. And Kundra just refused blank to give publication right. And I think that it really, its circulation and impact in Central Europe was very reduced. You have to bear in mind that the vast majority of Czechs had not heard of Václav Havel until 1989. Um, his plays weren't performed, he, his activities weren't reported on, he was largely under house arrest. Václav Havel's reputation was made in the West, not in Czechoslovakia. Professor Watson? I have nothing to add to that, or nothing to add. I think that's yeah, completely wrong. Sir. What, if anything, does the term century Europe mean in the post-1989 period? Well, I think I it's... We, it's, it's yeah. As, as I've said, I think it, it was it was used as a way of saying we are different. Then it became uh, a means of uh, uh, obtaining fast track into the European Union. Um, I've noticed it possibly isn't being used so frequently in places like Hungary and Poland now. Um, and I wonder whether that has something to do with their disillusionment of membership of the European Union. That's just a, a, a thought. I haven't been into it in, 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 in counted up references or anything like that. Uh, they still think of themselves as Central Europeans, but they Central Europeans perhaps with a difference. They're not as gung-ho about um, the European Union as, say, um, uh, Slovenia uh, or, 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 or even Austria. Professor Watson? Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with that as well. I, I think that um, I think that back after '89, emphasising Central Europeanness was a very powerful way of getting over the old Eastern Bloc label, um, where with, with Europe separated into the capitalist West and the communist Eastern Bloc. So, emphasising that you were Central Europe was an immediate Central European was 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 an immediate ticket to integration with the further west. And I think that's, that's where its major utility lay. I think where you still hear today, uh, and what Martin has said about, about the shifting, um, uh, the sort of shifts in that, I think, I think is also right. But where you do still hear Central Europe today is in opposition when, when Poland or um, other countries to the east of Germany are labelled rarely Eastern European or more normally now East Central European uh, East, uh, East Central Europe, then there is that pushback towards no, you know, 
we are Central European. And I think that's, again, a, a, a marker of belonging, a marker of identity in opposition to, in, in opposition to, um, to an East either dominated or threatened by Russia. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's where the utility of the term still, still exists in the, uh, yeah, in the, uh, what are we, the third decade now of the 20th century. Any last words, gentlemen? Uh, I think to go back to Alex's point, it's a movable feast, but I think there's a core there, um, and that core hangs around the old imperial Germany and the old Habsburg monarchy. And I think I think I'd absolutely agree with that as well. There's certainly, you know, German history, not history of Germany as a state, but um, German history in the sense of the people and and, and the countries they were involved from Switzerland through to modern day Austria, through to Germany. That that seems to me at the very core of Central Europe. As though to, um, uh, but but then you've also got uh, you've also got. Uh, um, Poland and, and 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 Czechoslovakia, and of course in these areas, it, it's worth remembering as well. There was a significant German uh, German mm. presence um, for a long, long, long time. So maybe the key to this does 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 lie in 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 Germanness at least at least to some degree. But uh, I would encourage people to read Martin's book to find out more. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. That's well, you can't you you can't say it and I can and I you know I, I, I read it. It's a complicated subject and uh, yeah, if you want to find out more, absolutely go go there and we'll give you some answers. On those observations, gentlemen, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo, and you're listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Well, thank you very much for thank inviting you. me, and thank you. Bye. Bye.